Later this month, the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP28, will bring together world leaders, businesses and NGOs to discuss the urgent need to reduce carbon emissions caused by fossil fuels. But do global policymakers share the urgency felt by the citizens they govern to act decisively? Starting on the 30th of November and running for nearly two weeks, this year's conference will be held in the United Arab Emirates and it will include a global stocktake of the progress made since the landmark 2015 Paris Agreement, in which countries pledged to reduce carbon emissions and step up the rollout of renewable energy in order to limit the potentially devastating effects of climate change. But how far off course has the world drifted during the last eight years? What will the wind industry be calling for from world leaders at this year's conference? Is the aim of tripling renewable energy deployment by 2030 even possible, let alone realistic? And has the time now come to override any objections to wind power from the public in the face of the existential threat to human life on Earth? Our guests answer these questions and more in the latest Wind Power podcast. I'm Ian Griggs. Deputy Editor of Wind Power Monthly, and joining me to discuss the forthcoming conference, I'm lucky to be joined by three great guests. First up, we have Ben Backwell. Ben, a former energy journalist, is Chief Executive of the Global Wind Energy Council, also known as GWEC. Morning, Ian. Glad you could join us, Ben. Um, also joining us is Morten Durholm. Morten is Group Senior Vice President of Communications, Sustainability and Public Affairs at the turbine manufacturer Vestas. Great to be here. Thanks, Morton. And finally, we're joined by James Theobolds. James is a director at Engineering, Sustainability and Design Consultancy, Arup. Thanks for inviting me. Welcome to all of you, gentlemen. Ben, what's the one thing at the top of the wind industry's shopping list of demands for the forthcoming COP28 conference? Well, I wouldn't say demands, first of all, but there's a lot that we're looking for. I think, first of all, there's a strong push now to establish a tripling uh, of renewables by 2030 as a target and for that to be part of the COP declaration um, and hopefully more than that, something that actually uh, binds people to that target. And then I think secondly, measures around concrete action to make that target um, actually something real. I mean, there's no point having bigger and bigger targets unless we're actually uh, building more renewables. But we'd also like to see uh, further progress on fossil fuels phase out. Morton, what are turbine manufacturers looking for from this year's COP conference? I've been part of the last 15 or so climate conferences, and uh, it's become almost a tradition to to go there and announce some huge targets. Last time, we initiated a campaign to get some focus on permitting reform because we need to be able to go from targets to actual actions. It's about how to, to get those gigawatts into concrete actions. And then you need to go into the nitty-gritty and talk about, okay, how do you actually get permitting reform? How do you make the frameworks around these targets in a way that actually creates momentum on the ground? As a turbine manufacturer, and you know, we're all about the action part. I mean, I think we have something to contribute with in, in to actually tell these global policymakers what works and what doesn't. James, what would you like to add to the list of requests? 
And I think the wider energy system you know, also needs to be thought about. We need to be not just going for the low-hanging fruit that will bring big numbers forwards in certain aspects of the energy transition, but also some of those more difficult problems to solve. We see some really fantastic progress on things like grid and, and cooperation between different countries. A holistic approach. And it's most recent report ahead of COP28, the International Renewable Energy Agency, known as IRENA, called for a tripling of renewable power by 2030 and a doubling of energy efficiency in order to keep the target of limiting temperature increases to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. How realistic do you think the aim of tripling renewables by 2030 is, Morton? Well, it's definitely not realistic if uh, you just show up and announce targets and then, uh, you know, you forget all about it again. It only becomes realistic where we start to look at the actual needs on the ground to get those turbines and those solar panels up. In some places, it can take 10 years just to get a permit, right? It is fixing those fundamental challenges that stands in our way. And then we can accelerate and we can get to the tripling. It requires to go down into sort of the smaller things you can say. Sometimes it's about figuring out if there's enough administrative resources in municipalities. You know, it's that kind of level to get to the tripling. Then we need to become very, very practical. James, how realistic is uh, Irina's target? As an engineer, I would say technically feasible, um, but these things are going to take money and they're going to take support. Plans need to be put in place that can enable things to happen. And I think bringing people with us is something which we really need to focus on now more than ever. Ben, what's your level of confidence here? I think, as, as, as Morton said, we need to dig down into how does COP translate into action. And I think if we can cast our minds back to Paris, what Paris did was it established a treaty that countries signed up for. And then through these nationally determined contributions, countries you know, have their own emissions targets. The reason why COP's important is to establish these kind of legally binding mechanisms. And, and this COP is particularly important because it's a global stock take where we look at five years after Paris and say, are we on track? Clearly not. From a kind of political point of view, what people are trying to do is say, let's get this back on track by having these very big targets. But again, if those targets are not backed up by nationally binding you know, action plans, things like speeding up permitting, as Morton mentioned, if we're not fixing market frameworks so that manufacturers can make money from their industrial um, investments, then none of this is going to work, basically. So it's not so much whether we think it's credible or not. It's about whether we can turn the targets into concrete action plans on a national level. Ultimately, this needs to turn into regulations and laws that allow us then to go out and build faster. So it's whether there's that will at a national level. It's a mixture of some countries taking a lead, diplomatic pressure on other countries to join in and up their ambition. It's also a matter of public pressures. As James said, we need to take people with us. As you get into the actual dynamics of building out large-scale renewables, that aspect of public support becomes even more important. Completely agree. James, did you want to come back in on that? Violently agree with Ben on that point. There's a very diverse range of different countries who are forming part of COP and everybody is in a different place in terms of where their economies are developed to, where, where they are on the energy transition. And it definitely needs that coordinated approach where this is looked at as a global problem rather than a series of countries looking at their own individual issues and dealing with them in a segmented way. Let's get into some of the nitty gritty, as Morton called it. How are we to achieve this tripling when the current bottlenecks 
of permitting on the one hand and a grid infrastructure that effectively needs to be rebuilt on the other appear to be so intractable. Morton? At least in, in the EU, where we have seen a lot of challenges with regard to permitting, that more and more countries are uh, supporting the EU legislation on a maximum 12 months permitting uh, process. And that to me is encouraging. I mean, if you just think back a couple of years ago, no one actually talked about permitting in any real sense of all. So that agenda has moved actually quite fast. And the fact that we now actually have policies in place, I think is huge progress. We saw Germany last week actually becoming very serious on permitting. I'm seeing all these signs that governments are moving in the right direction. And, you know, I don't have a lot of patience, but uh, I understand that policymaking has to take time. This is the crucial, you know, sign that EU governments are getting real about fixing the nitty-gritty. So I'm actually quite hopeful about Europe now starting to take the right steps and close that say-do gap that we see in terms of targets versus actual reality. Obviously, time is a commodity that we're rather short on. Ben, do you want to take us out wider for a moment? Morton says he's seeing encouraging signs in Europe. What are you seeing on a more global level? I think the EU directives have been really encouraging. We need to see the same also in the UK, where there was a kind of high-level target to cut down permitting time by half. Um, It seems to have got stuck in the politics. In the US, we're very encouraged by the Inflation Reduction Act and the whole impetus that's given to uh, both onshore and offshore development there. The US is really trying to get ahead of the whole permitting conundrum because they can see what a big problem it's going to become. And then I think there's other countries which have set targets, and I don't think we should be too negative about things because there's a whole bunch of new uh, countries that weren't even in the game before. Major industrial economies like Japan and Korea and Vietnam and Australia and Philippines and many other places in India, which are far more aggressive now on their targets. But there's quite a lot to work through in terms of the regulation. And this can take a really long time. And somehow we need to cut down the whole lead time from decades to a few years. And that's really the challenge that we're engaged in. How do you try to clear through some of that kind of fog of war and get to very practical, implementable systems that work for investment you know, in a very short period of time? That's one of the things we're really going to be pushing at COP is a whole series of kind of bilateral forums around specific issues like uh, permitting and offtake and grid to try and speed up that process. Do you think that some of the countries, which, as you said, are just starting their journey into wind power, can learn from the countries where they're more established? Do you think that's possible? Morton has been very involved in this work over the years as chair of GWEC. We created two mechanisms, really. One is the Global Offshore Wind Alliance, which is a diplomatic alliance of countries to share best practices and knowledge. And then also we've created a a technical assistance program as well called the Ocean Energy Pathways, which is about trying to solve those nitty gritty issues. It's about seconding people into governments. It's about putting resource into things like establishing the right permitting frameworks. That work just needs to be done. Just this kind of building of capacity um, among governments. Some governments just don't have the resource. They don't have the bureaucrats necessary to do this. And we're going to need to create that resource collectively around the world for things to move forward faster. Well, there's not enough people all the way through, really, is there, to deliver on this yet? Uh, We need to encourage a whole younger generation, I think, to join the wind industry. James, what's your view of the the, the the perennial bottleneck? permitting and grid infrastructure, are we getting anywhere? 
there are lots of lessons to be learned through um, you know, the experiences that other markets have had in terms of developing technology, thinking about how information is being shared to streamline processes, um, developing tools that can support stakeholder engagement and thinking about, about how we move forwards together. It's also important to recognize, I think, that solutions that might work for one particular geography may not work for another. Uh, we did some work with the World Bank recently looking at key success factors for developing offshore wind. It was very clear from that, the range of different positions that people are starting from. Conversely, you might see some more developed markets, which have got some great examples in place of, of how some of these problems are being solved in other parts of the world who might be earlier in their journey. Perhaps some of the challenges they're dealing with are less complex. So getting some of those early projects out there aren't so much of an issue, but they need to be thinking ahead to what the future may bring. I worry slightly that even if we get the permitting right and we rebuild this grid infrastructure at a lightning fast rate, what about the wind supply chain, uh, James? Can it even deliver on this aspiration of tripling by 2030? I think it can. It absolutely needs the right conditions. There needs to be further thought around what are the points in time at which the supply chain needs to invest in infrastructure to scale up to deliver. I think the market conditions are still um, not clear in terms of the, the, the quality of the pipeline going forward are enabling long-term investment decisions. So I think we do need to look quite carefully, you know, how we're bringing projects to market, um, how late in the project development cycle a project could hit a critical floor. Those sorts of things don't breed confidence in the supply chain. But it's really encouraging to see the work that's happening in Scotland at the moment with the, the SIM model, where they're looking at engaging with the wider supply chain to work at how parts of the supply chain can come together um, to develop investable proposals that will enable them to scale up. So I think that kind of coordination and cooperation will help kind of mitigate some of that delivery risk as well. Morton as a turbine manufacturer, you must be acutely aware of what the supply chain can and can't deliver. What's your view of the current health of the supply chain? It's been a rough couple of years for the supply chain. There's, there's no hiding that. We delivered our quarterly results last week, and I think it's clear to everyone that, that we have the worst behind us, uh, at least as investors. We've always delivered, you know, whenever there is a demand. If you look at these historical jumps we've seen in demand, supply chain has always stepped up. And we do invest whenever we see there is a, um, a good business case to do so. And we get that, uh, as James is saying, we get the right signals from the market. Two examples I can mention where we have announced further investments. Um, the U.S. and the onshore side, I mean, a really, really good uh, market right now. And we're expanding our manufacturing facilities in the U.S. to, to, to cater for that demand. Uh, Poland, we've announced uh, new manufacturing facilities because there is a, a really good uh, uh, demand in terms of offshore in Poland. And we can see a long-term business case in doing so. So I'm not that concerned about us being able to deliver. I'm more concerned about getting the investment signals right. You can see what has what's happening now in the US on the offshore side. But offshore, you're seeing all these issues right now. And of course, all investors will sit and look at that and say, is this really a good time to invest in, in the East Coast and the US? And I understand that because it, and the same goes for the UK. I mean, after the last round five, we saw basically no bids. I mean, we were out saying as investors, you know, OK, let's put a hold on whatever investment plans we had in the UK because we need to see, you know, some stability and a long term uh, prospect of the market. So, so that's just how it is. Quite depressing to hear what you're saying about the, the UK. Ben, you wanted to come in on this. Some of this comes back to government in terms of the investment signals. The price signals often are not there for people to be able to invest. And obviously, we saw that very clearly in the UK, where the sector was being asked to commit to projects at prices that were just well, so far low 
below the market and wasn't workable and nobody showed up. We've seen it with some of the states in the US East Coast where people have had to go back and try and renegotiate their offtake contracts where it's been done through auctions. Where the market has been able to act directly, for instance, on the US onshore, where it's, it's PPAs, the price increases from inflation have just been passed through without any great problem and the market's moved on and wind power, lo and behold, is still extremely competitive, right? But where you have governments trying to artificially still push prices lower, you know, we're obviously in a different environment with inflation and financing costs and raw material costs. That's where the bottlenecks are, are appearing. And um, there's a basic conflict sometimes between governments, energy and climate objectives and what treasury departments, for instance, are trying to achieve. But at the moment, you know, we have government policy aimed at creating huge volume and huge new projects for offshore wind. And then we have treasury departments still trying to push prices down to a level that's just not viable to invest. I mean, a more cynical person than me might say that some of them don't even want us to succeed. I don't want to believe that. James, I think you wanted to come in. We need to be careful we're not kind of pushing ourselves into a position of hollowing out in terms of relentless R&D that has been driven by the need to drive down costs from a supply chain where there are particular technologies, so in offshore wind, you know, with turbines, with HVDC systems, there is quite a limited pool of, of OEMs that Western markets will be comfortable working with. There is absolutely the need to broaden the field in terms of the number of competitors in these critical technologies. We think about what are the opportunities for extracting a lot of the efficiency and value that have been wrapped up in all of the R&D that we've seen happening over the course of the last decade. There needs to be some balance brought back to making sure that we're building a, a sustainable supply chain that can scale up and not just deliver 2030 ambitions, but also move on to deliver 2050 ambitions as well. And talking about ambitions and who's going in the right direction, which countries appear to be heading in the right direction to potentially achieve tripling? Ben, you're particularly well-placed from the perspective of GWEC to give us some sort of comparison here. Who are the heroes? I don't know. Maybe we'll not mention villains just yet, but who's really doing it? China is doing it. People don't like to talk about China because it's such a different system, but China's half the wind energy market this year. We're very encouraged by what the US has done for the IRA. We think really for the next 10 years, there's going to be just such a boost in scale and technology and manufacturing capacity in the US that it's really going to have a major impact on the world. I mean, I'm very confident that Europe will you know, align its policy agendas in the right way. The willpower is there and the commitment from the top is there. I think it's about just aligning things in the right way so that then the industry can start investing in big time, which is going to have to with these very ambitious um, offshore and onshore uh, targets. And then, uh, I don't know, maybe as a bit of light relief in the UK, the overall trajectory has been very positive. It seems to have become the most unpredictable place on the planet in the last, well, last few years. Hopefully that will change as well on some relative calm and longer term thinking will return to, to the politics. So I think, I mean, to be honest, I don't think there's heroes and villains. I think there's places where things need to really speed up. There's whole parts of the global south that haven't really got going yet um, and that have enormous potential to take part in this market. Um, there's places like East Asia and Southeast Asia where they're trying their best and they have a very ambitious targets and they have human capacity, industrial capacity to, to really get there. There's areas like the Middle East where we can actually see some really interesting things happening in Egypt, in Saudi, also in North Africa. There's huge potential there as well. I don't doubt that 
bring in, in all those new areas and all that new energy, um, we can get to a tripling. But there's making sure the politics moves in a constructive way. And I think that's probably my biggest worry. It's not our ability to go out and build and do good things or even bring people with us. It's the politics, which is slightly, has become more unpredictable. Yeah, well, let's just say culture wars doesn't really help when you're trying to build out renewables quickly, really, right? Yeah, exactly. And the politics has become destructive. We face serious issues around disinformation, fake news, and as a kind of large energy industry that depends on planning, depends on public consent, we're quite vulnerable to that kind of negative politics. And I mean, all I can say is we'd really like to see politicians step up and be responsible. Not enough just to kind of come out with some targets, then sit back and just let all kinds of silly debates rage and not really get behind it and not explain to people how important this is for people. Because the consequences of not acting are going to be far, far worse than the kind of impacts that people are are worried about. Explaining to people what the win is um, and really standing behind that in a united way and making it something which is cross-party, which is not susceptible just to the kind of more tribal end of politics. Uh, That's going to be the real challenge for decent politicians in the coming decade. A return to responsible politics is something I think we'd all welcome, isn't it? Morton, Ben's given a kind of a a worldview, if you like, drilling down into Europe for a moment. Where do you see the leaders? Right now, Germany is definitely, uh, you know, showcasing determination to get back on track. That's super encouraging for everyone. My own country, little country here, Denmark, we are case in point of the opposite. We're taking down more wind turbines now than we are erecting. And the political class here in Denmark says all the right things. They all want to move ahead, but no one seems to be able to find out how or have the political strength and will to actually drive action. It's sort of a microcosmos of what can go wrong because we've put together so many pieces of legislation that they sort of become obstacles for the build out. You have four different entities, you know, municipalities and regional and government, and then you have uh, veto rights from churches and from other municipalities, and you have two obligatory, you know, hearings with neighbors and the whole process just drags out and runs into problems. And for investors, it's a nightmare, right? Denmark is sort of a place, an interesting place where we've been a front runner and we have matured our legislation to a point where we have actually stopped development of new wind turbines, right? Denmark also have 2030 targets to meet. We also have to triple. We also have to create enough green electrons to produce green hydrogen. But I see Germany really taking a fast track here, allocating 2% of their territory for build-out, streamlining permitting, doing everything they can to uh, to get back on track. And I hope Denmark and other places where they still hang a little bit uh, can learn. James, you made a really good point here about responsible politicians. But I think it's also a time to reflect and look inwards and say we also need to be responsible in the industry. We don't help ourselves in the industry by constantly spinning out new larger turbines, for example. I mean, we are out saying let's stop the arms race a little bit here and and make sure we focus on standardization, you know, modularization, efficiency gains. We're not stopping innovation, but we have to have a focus on just maturing our supply chains and making sure we can deliver standardized products at a rapid click. Stop trying to make them bigger and more powerful and just get them out there. James, COP28's president-designate Dr. Sultan Al-Jabbar says now is the time to, and I'm quoting him here, turbocharge solutions and meet the urgency of the moment with ambitious and determined action. But do you actually sense that urgency amongst policymakers? I am seeing that urgency in terms of people are now starting to look at 2030 and recognize actually it's not terribly far away. 
and some of these big intractable problems like how do we upgrade the grid in time? How do we deal with some of these other wider energy system issues, which are going to be blockers to getting to 2030, starting to move up to the top of people's priority lists? But I think this has to be a politically led process. This has to have the support of the governments that are working together. And it has to have the support of the people who elect those governments, that whole point around the need for the industry to educate people and to inform people so that they back politicians and they're actually calling for focus and pressure in these places. I think there's lots that can be done. Who are the stakeholders who are most impacted by the build out of these projects? And it's not just uh, an exercise of how much are they willing to compromise in order to get them built. From what you've all said, we are seeing a renewed sense of urgency in the EU. The US is quite encouraging. The UK considerably less encouraging at the moment. Ben, are you seeing a wider sense of urgency amongst policymakers on a global level this is now? Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of urgency and I'm seeing a lot of the leading figures in international politics really pushing behind this issue. I think there's also a sense of time running out. It's getting a balance between keeping things positive and at the same time keeping this kind of high level pressure on around urgency. I think some of it is spilling over into despair sometimes frankly when I look at some of the messaging coming from world leaders. But at the end of the day this is going to come down to politics and I think the point James made right at the beginning bringing people with us building workable coalitions to get things done. Definitely think the wind industry can improve quite a lot in terms of communications, political outreach, being pragmatic about who we work with, around making sure that these things don't become partisan or part of culture wars. We want to be building bridges across the political spectrum. So how do we do that? There's so much to do, I think, on the engagement side. You know, the technical problems we can solve, you know, this should be about reaching out into new areas where we've barely scratched the surface with a proposition that works for those countries where people feel they're involved where the wind energy is cheap, economical, creating jobs for people. there. And again, there's a danger of polarisation. You can see it around some voices, you know, some of whom are linked to the fossil fuel industry that try and kind of polarise around saying, well, we're not, you know, in the South, we're not getting anything out of the renewables revolution. You're trying to stop us from selling gas when we could be making money from it, really kind of twisting the issues. To be fair, that's going to happen until you really create critical momentum around renewables and have people benefiting from it and bringing the investment to the global south working with stakeholders there as well i think is a huge project now for the next 10 years this can't be a game for just china the us and europe which is kind of what it is at the moment you know this needs to be a game for the whole world you know you sort of mentioned sort of central for divisive politics Earlier this year, the head of the banking giant JP Morgan Chase said in a letter to shareholders that the US government should consider seizing privately held land for the purposes of speeding up the energy transition. Uh, do you think the situation is now so serious, Ben, that this should be considered? We can see in parts of the developing world, planning is done in a different way to planning is done in the West. Some countries, they're building out big infrastructure, right? And they're doing it led by the state. And they're saying, we're going to do this and we're happy to engage with you, but get out of the way. And you, I can see that in quite a few countries around the world. You know, it's, it's big planning and big state decisions that override everything else. And I think we do need to be prepared for discussions around overriding public interest as well. We've seen that in Germany. We've seen that in other places. One person in a house blocking a major piece of national infrastructure 
probably isn't going to win that legal battle. I'd say that's in pretty much everywhere in the world. And the question is, how far do you go with that? And then how do you also make sure that people are consulted, they're treated fairly? But decisions are going to need to be made. Just to go back to the UK, because I think it's fair to say it's, season, you know, it's open season for making fun of the UK at the moment. But um, I mean, if you saw the discussions around you know, HS2, the high-speed rail line, you know, it was quite clear that it was very, very difficult for government to make decisions in the context of a highly urbanized you know, and suburbanized, highly politicized, mature democracy and be able to push through large infrastructure. Yes, yes. As much as I agree that we need to work on a community level and make it attractive, we're, we're also going to need to work on um, national discussions around what kind of climate policy do we want? Are we going to be good actors in this as a nation or not? It's not going to be just local discussions that decide that. Morton, I remember in an earlier edition of, of the Wind Power podcast that you told me how incredibly frustrating it was that in Denmark, one person can object to a wind farm and it won't get built. Should the public still have a say in whether a wind or another renewables project can be built? Is it now time to take it out of individual public acceptance for a specific wind farm? I think people need to be heard. And I think we have to have compensation mechanisms that works for people around these sites. But I don't think a single person can speak for the silent majority. That's unfortunately the case today. And it means, as Ben says, that we effectively decentralized, you know, vital decisions on national and energy security to people that doesn't like to look at wind turbines. That's a strategic mistake for us. I mean, we're trying to combat climate change. We're trying to get out of Putin's gas. We're trying to lower electricity bills. All that value we lose because we have allowed individuals that do not like to look at a wind turbine to scuttle projects. And that cannot go on. Ben is right. There's going to be a point in time where you're going to be seeing governments taking some more drastic action. It's not a choice we have, right? We have to do this. So, so at some point, we might as well start looking at these regulations. And we know, we can see from data, especially after Putin's uh, violent attack in, in Ukraine, we can see from data that Danes' acceptance as neighbors to wind turbines have gone up dramatically because they can see a clear link between their own electricity bills and when it's windy outside. In Denmark, we have apps on our phones to monitor how much wind we have in our system, right? Because we know that's when we can start up our all appliances. And that connection has become very clear to people. Presumably the feeling of energy security. Absolutely. And that's where we can cross the partisan divide. I mean, this is homegrown energy. And I think in the U.S., that huge amount of jobs that the U.S. economy is attracting right now in, in wind, a majority of that is actually in Republican states. The Republican states at the local level and state level, they can see all this economic value and all this benefit that this, this provides. I think that story needs to be told, you know, at least from the U.S., a point where we can bridge the divide and, you know, avoid this becoming very partisan because it's a benefit to all. Homegrown energy, combat climate change, what's not to like? What's not to like? We've touched on public opinion a few times already during this podcast, but James, with COP28 at or near the top of the news cycle for its duration. Will this be a moment to highlight the role of wind in achieving a rapid reduction in emissions to the wider public? The impact of Ukraine has been huge globally. Impacts on what's happening in the country, but also in terms of wider energy systems, economically, across our interlinked systems. And it's just a foretaste 
If we don't do something about the energy crisis and we enable the situation to worsen, uh, the sort of complex and very unpredictable challenges and disruptions we'll see on every level that will impact on human suffering, on the quality of life that we lead. The cost of not doing things at this stage is vast. Now is, a, is, is an excellent time to be saying this is the time to act to improve the acceleration of the energy transition. We're looking to try and implement an energy transition over the course of 10 or 20 years when human history has shown typically it takes about a century. So we are massively having to accelerate and do things radically differently to how we've done things in the past. It's a great jumping off point, creates a burning platform for us to go and do things which are slightly different. Ben, just briefly, if you would, are you seeing greater public acceptance towards wind power in global markets? When you take the kind of big level polling, wind power has been increasingly popular over the years. And those are borne out also by national polling as well. The overall support for wind, I'm not worried about it. I think particularly generationally, renewables, wind, solar technology, it's not something questionable for younger people that misinformation tends to circulate amongst older people. So our overall public acceptance, I think, is good, and it's going to get higher. For much of the world, this is about a kind of incomplete transition, and that's what's creating these kind of very volatile effects around the world. Even before Ukraine, we had a huge spike in the coal price in Asia. That had a big impact in China. The longer it takes to do the transition, the more we're susceptible to this kind of high volatility, which is caused by exposure to fossil fuels. And I'm very confident that every gigawatt of wind power we install anywhere in the world has a beneficial economic effect and a beneficial social effect. And it's just about telling that story in the right way in the different places. We're rapidly running out of time. The COP requires one of the difficult things in diplomacy, and that is reconciling the competing demands of nations to arrive at internationally binding agreements in order to achieve anything meaningful. So are you concerned about the impact of the US elections next year, given that Donald Trump's last presidency was characterized by a tendency to exit international agreements, particularly those concerned with the climate crisis? Morton, are you concerned about what the outcome of the US elections might be next year? There's always a reason to look carefully at, at the U.S. political system. The Trump presidency in the last round was business as usual for the wind industry. And I suspect the same will happen should Trump win again, because the economic rationale for the Americans and for the U.S. to continue down this path is so strong and so clear. That said, on the international front, it's anyone's guess. For me, the COP is a fantastic derive or for you know the peer pressure that goes on up towards a COP. We see markets having to respond, countries having to respond and, and update their plans. And the only thing we can do, um, Ben and James and myself, is you know having as, as loud a voice as possible at the COP and get our points of view. That's our role. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll achieve an even louder voice this time around. I hope so. James, just very briefly, if you would, are you concerned about the US elections next year? I think, you know, when you look at the economic rationale for the energy transition, it, it stands on its own two feet and where it makes business sense, you know, it's fantastic to see those things moving forwards. I worry a little bit about the kind of international cooperation side of things and the point that Ben was referring to about needing to make sure that the global south is, is also supported because otherwise, if this isn't a global solution, then we all fail. I think there's definitely a need to make sure that we don't leave people behind. Ben, your thoughts on the outcome of the next US presidential elections and how much of an impact that might have? It's fair to say I'm concerned. 
But um, I also think you know the wind industry it involves tens of thousands of people, investors. I think a lot of this investment has gone into the the red states. There's so much to like about what's happening, and and also about rebuilding American industry, bringing back manufacturing jobs. I, I, I just think there's so much to like about it that. I think um, any attempt to completely undo that or unwind that is, is going to be quite difficult. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about money and economics in the US. Having said that, peace is needed to fight climate change. International cooperation is needed. And generally, anything that creates a more kind of bellicose you know, atmosphere, a more warlike atmosphere that questions the truth and the science behind climate change, none of that's helpful for us. So as citizens, you know, we've all got to go out there and do our best to try and keep politics on an even kill. I'm glad we ended on a positive note. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say, though, that we have run out of time. So I would just simply say, Ben Backwell, Morton Duholm, James Theobolds, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Wind Power Podcast. Wind Power Monthly's Blades Europe live event will be held in Amsterdam this year on the 28th and 29th of November. Visit bladeseuropeforum.com for more details. And for more news, expert opinion and analysis of the wind industry, visit windpowermonthly.com.